This podcast is from the Rand Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. For more Rand analysis, reports, and commentary on issues at the forefront of today's policy debate, visit www.rand.org. Good morning, everybody. Um, we're about to get started here. Uh, my name is Jamie Fugelson. I'm the Director of Congressional Relations for the Rand Corporation. It's my pleasure to welcome you guys to our briefing this morning titled Overcoming the Threats of Our Strategic Competitors. The 2018 National Defense Strategy states that long-term strategic competitions with China and Russia are our primary national security concerns and will require increased and sustained investments. The United States will also need to counter and deter North Korea and Iran and defeat terrorists. Rand Wargaming and Analysis point to serious and growing gaps in the ability of the U.S. and allied forces to defeat aggression by the most capable of these competitors. Today, we will talk about how U.S. forces, I'm sorry, how U.S. forces and force planning are in need of revision, the challenges posed by China, Russia, North Korea, Iran, and Salafist jihadi groups, weapon systems and posture enhancements that have the potential to overcome those challenges, and three alternative force planning constructs. Today, uh, I'm very happy that we are joined by Mr. David Achmanik, um, one of our foremost experts on this topic at the RAND Corporation. Dave is a senior international defense researcher. From 2009 until 2014, he was the Deputy Assistant Secretary of Defense for Force Development. Prior to that, he was a senior defense analyst and director of the Strategy and Doctrine Program for uh, Project Air Force at RAND. From 1993 to 1995, Dave served as a Deputy Assistant Secretary for Defense Strategy, and he was also a member of the U.S. Foreign Service and served as an officer in the United States Air Force. Uh, so he'll bring a wealth of expertise to this topic today, and we're very excited to have him. So please welcome him for this morning's discussion. Good morning. Thanks for coming. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, as Jamie said, we undertook this work starting about two years ago in anticipation of the national defense strategy that was legislatively required of the Department of Defense. Um, we routinely do gaming and analysis of conflict scenarios around the world to include Russia, China, and North Korea. And over the years, our gaming and analysis increasingly uh, was yielding rather disquieting findings about the changing military balance between the United States and and its, and its chief adversaries. And so we drew on that analysis to do this work. Uh, our report, which is available, was not actually published until December of last year, but we shared our work informally and an early draft with the people in OSD and the Pentagon who were working on the national defense strategy. And I think you'll see as we go along, for those who are familiar with the contents of the NDS, that there's a lot of similarity between the directions that we think the force needs to be going in and the, and the, and the uh, direction that's outlined in the NDS. So I'd like to share with you first our diagnosis of the challenges, the problems facing U.S. forces, and then our thoughts about the directions in which the force should be evolving uh, to address those challenges. But I'd like to start uh, first with a pop quiz, just to make sure everyone's awake. It's a simple three-question, true-false quiz. Number, question number one, United States... Fields the finest fighting force the world has ever known. That's true. President Obama said this. All presidents say this or something like it at one time or another because they feel good about it. Um, it's certainly been true since the later years of the Cold War, and it remains true today. 
Question number two, the U.S. spends about twice as much on its armed forces as China and about six times as much as Russia on an exchange rate basis. That's actually true. Um, uh, now, economists will debate whether exchange rate or purchase power parity is the right way to calculate it, but we, we very substantially outspend our chief adversaries in terms of our defense spending. And therefore, one might expect that question number three would also be true. U.S. forces will be capable of accomplishing any mission that could be assigned to them. This is where the disquiet starts to enter. As we look at plausible conflict scenarios involving China, Russia, North Korea in the, in the, in the, in, in the near term, uh, too often, blue fails to achieve its objectives in our war games. Uh, and there are a variety of reasons for this, which we can go into. Um, I think there's a sense of complacency about the state of our armed forces because of the outstanding performance they've turned in in every conflict they've engaged in since Operation Desert Storm. We're accustomed as Americans to seeing our forces win big with low risk, low casualties, uh, and, and really no uncertainty about the outcome when we fight a state adversary. Uh, that sense of complacency is no longer warranted. Our adversaries have been going to school on us. They've been identifying the vulnerabilities of U.S. forces. They've been fielding capabilities, some of which come from our own playbook, to counter our power projection operations. And let's be clear, uh, having the finest fighting force in the world is a necessary but not sufficient condition for supporting the very ambitious national security strategy that the United States has. No other nation on earth asked its forces to do what ours are asked to do, to go halfway around the world and fight powerful state adversaries in their backyard. Right? We pay a tremendous premium for that power projection requirement that we have in our forces. So um, so we have a situation here. Um, we are investing a substantial amount of national capital in our armed forces, and yet we have a force that does not give us confidence that it can achieve the missions assigned to it. And if we, it, we're, we're not in a good place. If you look at how the force comports with the requirements being levied on it, we have at once a force that's larger than it needs to be to fight a single war, and yet not sufficiently modern to keep pace with our most capable adversaries. Um, and, and that's eroding deterrence. We have posture issues as well, both in East Asia and in Europe. Right? The, the force is not based and located optimally for the challenges it faces. And we have too many units that are not fully trained and ready, which is partially an overhang from 16 years of war and partially a result of sequestration uh, in 2013 and other budget stringencies that have been placed on the force. And, and, and again, there are a number of reasons for this. One is this sense of overconfidence we have based on historical performance. Uh, one is, uh, again, the, the fact that we've been focused on winning wars against non-state adversaries for 16 years. The Budget Control Act is partly responsible for this, but I would also say the, the, the core of the defense strategy that animated U.S. force planning throughout the post-Cold War era, this requirement that our forces be capable of fighting and winning two nearly simultaneous wars against regional adversaries is also partly to blame for the problem that we have today. Okay. So we asked ourselves, if we could start with a clean sheet of paper, what would, should, could the force look like if it were better matched 
with the requirements of this more stressing security environment that we've seen emerge since the end of the post-Cold War era. What if we said the force will be designed, sized, postured, and structured to defend the homeland, to defeat any single adversary, including a near peer, i.e. China and Russia, and to conduct a sustained campaign against the most threatening jihadist Salafi groups around the world? That was the, that was the, the research question we took into this work. So I'll walk through the work with you. We'll go, we'll go state by state, adversary by adversary, talk about what we're learning from our gaming and analysis, and then offer thoughts about how we might be adjusting our investments uh, to, to meet these new challenges. Um, so we start with China. China is the state that fields the most comprehensive suite of modern military capabilities among our adversaries. Um, in a large-scale conflict, China would have capabilities to attack U.S. forces and bases out to Guam and beyond with ballistic and cruise missiles. And these are precision weapons. This is not your father's scud that Saddam Hussein shot at us in Desert Storm. These are highly accurate weapons in very large numbers. Uh, they threaten both land bases and sea bases as well, surface combatants. They have erected a very substantial air defense over their territory and over their coastal areas, particularly around the Taiwan Strait. U.S. forces would not expect to have air superiority over the battle space in the opening days of a, of a fight over Taiwan. They field a variety of ways to disrupt our space constellations, our communication satellites, our reconnaissance satellites, our positioning satellites, uh, GPS, which we rely very heavily on for modern military operations. They can also disrupt our command and control networks with jamming, with cyber attacks, and with, commercial, with uh, kinetic attacks. And they're growing uh, their capabilities to threaten U.S. submarine operations. Their goal for having all these capabilities is twofold. One, threaten the United States and its allies with costs and losses that might deter us from intervening in a conflict in China's backyard, or failing that, to keep U.S. combat power sufficiently at bay for a period of time to accomplish the primary objectives there of their aggression and confront us with a fait accompli. It would be very costly to reverse. Um, so what are we going to do about this? Basically, if, you, if I could identify three operational priorities, they would be these. One, do a better job of protecting the forces and bases we project into the Western Pacific region from these, from these attacks. Two, and this is crucial, find ways to reach into contested domains from the outset of a conflict and kill stuff. In the case of a, an invasion of Taiwan, that stuff is surface combatants and amphibious shipping. And we are not used to this, right? Our concept for power projection relies on gaining dominance of all five domains of warfare, air, sea, land, space, and cyber, virtually from the outset of the campaign, and then exploiting that dominance to locate, track, and engage targets of interest. We will not have the time and opportunity to do that in a conflict against China or, as we'll see, against Russia. That means finding ways, again, to reach into these contested zones from the outset and hold at risk what we call the operational center of gravity of the enemy's offensive. That's doable, but only with the right investments. And finally, help our allies, our partners on Taiwan to defend against forces that could have landed on their territory. Now, these are not intractable problems. Uh, we have a variety of options available to us in terms of investment priorities to give us these capabilities. Number one would be more standoff weapons. Why standoff? 
weapons that can be launched from beyond the range of the enemy's air defense and engage those targets that we most have to have to uh, engage. And our bomber force gives us uh, uh, a great advantage if we can equip it with the proper weapons. Those bombers can operate from beyond the reach of Chinese missiles. Uh, they can generate multiple sorties a day, reloading with these weapons and, and, and delivering them to the targets. Our submarines can do that as well, but their capacity and numbers are limited. Um, two, again, enhancements to the resiliency of our forward bases at sea and on land. And there are a variety of means to do this, some of them quite prosaic, like concrete um, and fuel bladders and expeditionary shelters to hide where our airplanes are, deception, decoys, cruise missile defenses, which we know how to build. Uh, even as we're finding better ways to reach into that contested airspace, we need to more rapidly dismantle the integrated air defense provided by surface-to-air missiles. Again, there are a variety of options for doing that. The missiles we have today are not well-suited to the task, in part because they're outranged by the most capable surface-to-air missiles that they're supposed to be killing. Uh, we will want to supplement our ability to observe the battle space by deploying ISR platforms, intelligence surveillance reconnaissance platforms that can survive in this uh, more threatening air defense environment. We want to take steps to make our space-based constellations harder to target <clears throat> and more resilient <clears throat> in wartime. And we can do a lot to help our partners in Taiwan more effectively defend themselves. They've been focused on buying high-prestige items like fourth-generation airplanes and submarines. Again, prosaic things like shallow-water mines, short-range anti-ship cruise missiles, um, un un unmanned aerial vehicles for, for reconnaissance, um, or rocket artillery could, could, could make them a much more difficult target uh, for China to, to attack. Now, it's not all about large-scale war, right? The most uh, likely... Um, scenarios we're going to involve uh, reflect China's continued efforts to uh, assert its claims over the South China Sea and the East China Sea without crossing the kinetic threshold and using war. And countering that is going to involve um, uh, finding ways to be more persistently present with maritime domain awareness, uh, with ships that can be there, and 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 equipping our, our lower-cost platforms like the LCS uh, frigates with capable anti-ship missiles offer, offer a way to be more capable, more present on a day-to-day -day basis that, that should be affordable. Let me move on to Russia and, and pick up the pace here a little bit. Uh, Russia was not on the radar scope of us force planners after the Cold War ended. It was only after the occupation of Crimea and the intervention in eastern Ukraine that we woke up and realized we have to, con we have to once again be concern ourselves with the credibility of our deterrent on NATO's eastern flank. In the fall of 2014, we at RAND began gaming a scenario depicting Russian aggression against the Baltic states. And we found again and again that the NATO posture was simply not adequate to defeat such an invasion. Um, and and And... Much of that, again, has to do with geographic advantage. The Russians can put 30 to 40 battalion tactical groups on the borders of the Baltics within the space of seven to 10 days. We would be very hard pressed to match that kind of force, given the posture that the alliance has today. 
That's even true in the wake of the initiatives taken after the Warsaw Summit in 2016. And so we're outgunned, we're outnumbered on the NATO uh, border. And just as in the case of the China scenario, U.S. forces cannot be confident of having air superiority over this battle space in the opening phase of the war, in large part because of the advanced integrated air defense provided by Russia's surface-to-air missiles. The Kaliningrad X-plane is bristling with these modern missiles. They would also bring those surface-to-air missiles to bear along the, the borders uh, with the Baltic states they were intervening in. And, uh, and, and our SAM suppression weapons are not up to the task today. Just like China, our space-based constellations would be a threat. We would expect to see cyber attacks on our command and control assets. Our rear areas, our bases, our ports, and so forth could be targeted by Russian cruise missiles. And when, again, when we run this scenario with the baseline posture, as we have published uh, in our documentation at the unclassified level, within two to three days, Russian forces are generally on the outskirts of the capitals of, of Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. So we've got a lot of work to do to catch up here. Uh, we start with posture. We have taken too much combat power out of Europe uh, over the last 15 years. We need to put some of it back. That's heavy ground forces, that's artillery, that's weapons and munitions. Also paying attention to the logistics and sustainment that make those forces capable in combat. Again, just like China, our forces have to find ways to reach into these contested battle spaces, locate, identify, track, and engage the enemy's operational center of gravity from the outset of the campaign, even without air superiority. In this case, that operational center of gravity is those 30 to 40 battalion tactical groups, tanks, armored personnel carriers, artillery, and their logistics trains that are conducting this invasion. Um, work on the SAMs, and then finally, defend our rear areas against these attacks. Now, the INF Treaty is our friend in Europe. Russia does not have the ballistic missile force that China has, but Russia has fielded substantial numbers of capable cruise missiles those can be defended against if we put our minds to it. Again, the list of priorities we would point to for investments, you, you start with posture, again, putting those heavy forces back into Europe, remembering how to kill tanks. This nation and our allies developed and fielded and produced some very capable anti-armor weapons in the 1980s. We then lost interest in killing tanks because our principal regional adversaries didn't have many of them. We need to reinvest in those capabilities. Uh, the Army is on the brink of fielding short-range air defenses, SHORADs, called the IFPIC system. In our modeling, IFPIC is highly effective at de defeating cruise missile attacks, even in large salvos. We need to buy those, we need to put them at our main operating bases, and we need to put them with the forces that we have in the field. The Russians do not want to contemplate maneuvering their Army in an, era, in an area where we can suppress the air defense that protects that Army. So demonstrating to them that we can kill their SAMs is, a, is high priority. I mentioned Kaliningrad. MLRS, the Multiple Launch Rocket System, in Lithuania and Poland can reach everything in Kaliningrad. Why don't we have it there? We need to put it there. It's a great way to kill SAMs and other things that threaten us. Um, we don't have that option in the China scenario. That'll have to be done from sea and airborne platforms. But we have an answer to this readily at hand if we'll just invest in putting it there. All right. North Korea is on everybody's minds for a variety of reasons. Uh, North Korea has long presented 
serious challenges to the Republic of Korea and the United States. Uh, since the 1980s, they've had the capability to rain artillery shells by the thousands on the greater Seoul metropolitan area. The new thing that North Korea presents, the potential game changer, of course, is a deliverable nuclear weapon. And those weapons could be delivered against military targets, such as maneuver forces, air bases, headquarters in the region, and ultimately threaten civilian targets, cities, as a way of trying to deter the United States from continuing a defensive or counteroffensive campaign against North Korea in a war. We have extensively gamed this. Going back to the early to mid-2000s, we at RAND were worried about this problem. And what we have found is that it can be quite difficult to deter, ironically, a relatively weak actor like North Korea from using nuclear weapons because in a war, the adversary might see that he has nothing to lose from escalating, right? Kim Jong-un has seen the movie Operation Desert Storm, Operation Allied Force, Operation Enduring Freedom. He knows what happens if the fight stays at the conventional level. He ends up hanging from a rope. His regime is over. In light of that, it's very difficult to deter him through the threat of retaliation from using nuclear weapons. I liken it to trying to deter someone on death row through the threat of execution. Right? He's already incurring the downside risk of escalation. That drives us to the need for capabilities to actually prevent nuclear use as opposed to trying simply to deter it through the threat of cost imposition. And as we know, that can be very difficult. Um, some of us in this room will remember the Scud Hunt from 1991 in Desert Storm. It was extremely difficult to locate small mobile targets, even in the open terrain of the desert. And between its caves and underground storage areas and the complex terrain of North Korea, we can't be confident of finding nuclear weapons and mobile ballistic missiles once they're flushed into the field. So we need to find ways to kill those missiles as they're rising in boost phase or in terminal phase, even as we also try to improve our capabilities to locate those missiles and do a better job of neutralizing the artillery should deterrence fail. Again, these are not necessarily intractable problems. We think that boost phase intercept, shooting an air-to-air missile at a ballistic missile while it's rising, is an unexplored, underexplored uh, technique for bottling up these weapons inside North Korea. The geography of North Korea, the fact that its air defense will be taken down very quickly in a war, makes it an ideal candidate for this kind of a concept. And, and of course, doing what we can to do a better job of tracking North Korean WMD and missiles um, and improving the, the, the sort of current generation missile defenses we have today. Let me turn briefly to Iran. Um, of all the four plus one adversaries, Iran is the one that most represents the familiar and, shall I say, comfortable regional adversary that our forces were used to engaging in the post-Cold War era. Uh, it does not have a highly sophisticated air defense today. It does not yet have weapons of mass destruction. But the Iranians have been investing their resources in niche capabilities that can raise the cost and risk of a U.S. intervention in their region. That includes large numbers of ballistic and cruise missiles, and they are not as capable yet, as accurate as those that China and Russia feel, but they are substantially more capable than those scuds that we experienced in Desert Storm and more numerous as well. Um, they have made no secret of their intention to close the Straits of Hormuz to shipping 
in the event of war with the United States and the Gulf Cooperation Council countries. They can do that with mines, they can do that with anti-ship cruise missiles, and they can do it um, with these hundreds of small boats, swarming tactics that they have, uh, that they have fielded with the IRGC. Um, and, then, and then finally, the Quds Force and proxy forces that have been cultivated by the Iranians in the region give them the potential to conduct unconventional attacks against our bases and forces, but also the infrastructure of our allies and partners in the region. So um, finding ways to address those threats uh, is a priority for us. And uh, that would point to the following kinds of uh, investment priorities. We're going to have to get serious about diversifying and hardening our air bases on the Arabian Peninsula and elsewhere in the region. Uh, The Navy is working on improving its defenses for its surface combatants to defeat these anti-ship cruise missiles and swarming attacks. Our partners in the region have strong incentives to keep the straits open. That's how they thrive economically, by exporting oil. They need to be encouraged to invest more aggressively in in mine-clearing capabilities. And the Iranians are moving to modernize and improve their surface-to-air missiles. So investments we make to better defeat Chinese and Russian uh, integrated air defenses will pay off in this scenario as well. Okay, uh, lastly, what about our non-state adversary? I don't think that uh, U.S. forces will be relieved of the requirement to continue to prosecute operations against the most threatening terrorist groups around the world within my lifetime. Um, They threaten our way of life, and they threaten to destabilize important regions of the world. Um, That doesn't necessarily mean this is the highest priority for us. It doesn't necessarily mean we have to invest vast sums in this. It doesn't mean that U.S. forces should be on the point of, uh, of, of capture kill operations all the time. But it does mean we should anticipate this as a continuing requirement for our for our armed forces. Um, and I would say that added emphasis needs to be given to the second bullet. Putting U.S. forces in the background of training, advising, assisting, and equipping the forces of partner states so that they can do a better job of providing security to their populations and going after these threatening groups on their own territory. The Philippines are the model to me for the future. We were there for 12 years in a small but sustained effort to raise their game. And they've done a very good job of making life tough for Abu Sayyaf and other terrorist groups in the southern part of the Philippines. That can work. It's not something that you get, you know, immediate gratification from. It takes time and takes effort, but it's a preferable way to do this rather than putting the U.S. face all the time on counterterrorism. That said, continuing to improve our intelligence capabilities and growing gradually the capacity of our special operations forces are important priorities here. Our special operations forces have been experiencing operations tempos that are not sustainable. And so we need to help them grow to do that better. Okay, so um, having done all this, we're now in a position to say something about the force as a whole and how it, sh- how it should be evolving going forward. Um, what I would say is um, we, we call it start small because we liberate ourselves from this requirement to have a force that's big enough to fight two wars at once, at least as an intellectual exercise. What we do is we size each force element, the Army, 
brigade combat teams, Air Force fighter squadrons, carrier strike groups, submarines, <clears throat> ISR platforms. Size each of those to the largest demand for that force element. We then um, add forces as appropriate beyond that, that one conflict to do the other things we know our forces are going to be called upon to do, including to sustain a forward presence, conducting this uh, counter-terrorist operation around the world and defending the homeland. The key is, is, is capability, this step. Buying the stuff that I talked about, the standoff cruise missiles, the SAM suppression weapons, the base resiliency things, the posture enhancements in Europe, uh, more resilient space constellations. All those things that I mentioned can be bought. And if you, again, liberate yourself from this requirement to have a big force for two wars, you could, in principle, free up the resources to do that modernization, which is so badly needed uh, to keep pace with our most capable adversaries. We know our strategic nuclear forces need to be modernized. That's a kind of a must-do. Um, and then finally... There are readiness bills to pay, and we've certainly seen that in the FY18 uh, budget and the FY19 submission. Uh, we have found in our research <clears throat> that you can do all of this at about the level of spending we have today if, if you could actually <clears throat> accept a one-war force. Now, we know in the real world we don't have that flexibility um, for a variety of reasons, political as well as strategic. There is, there is, people are uncomfortable with the notion of a force that can only fight one war because if we committed that force somewhere in the world, an opportunistic aggressor elsewhere might take advantage of it. So if you buy the insurance to have a force that can deter elsewhere while you're fighting in one part of the world, you can still do this critical modernization for something like an added 0.2 to 0.3% of GDP. 40 to $50 billion a year on a sustained basis out through 2030. Now, we're at 3.2% today. That's about what we were spending in the 1990s. 3.2% was a comfortable uh, share of national wealth going to defense in the fairly benign world that we had in the 1990s. We don't live in that world anymore. We face two major power adversaries with nuclear arsenals that can destroy our country. We face a third nuclear-armed regional adversary, and since 9-11, we face the requirement to fight terrorists around the world. It's going to take more than 3.2% of GDP. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.